Well, we've come to the end of Second Peter, and I'm not sure what's next, but I think for the second Sunday in December, I'll do a one-off topical sermon, probably on something Christmas-themed, and then start the new year with a new series, probably in the Old Testament. But like Troy, I'm still thinking about what that might be. It won't be whatever he's doing, so I'll, I'll follow his cue. So that's what's, that's what's coming up, but we're coming to the end of Second Peter. I will read this for us, turn in your Bibles or in your worship guide to Second Peter 3, 14 through 18. I'll read this and then pray. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these... Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your inspired, inerrant, authoritative word and we pray that by your spirit you would speak to us this evening may I as as your servant as a preacher may I resolve to know nothing but Christ and him crucified and may we love him more as a result of this time spent in your word and we pray this in Jesus name amen as we begin let me remind you of two things as we come to these last verses in Second Peter, let me remind you of the author and the audience. Who wrote Second Peter and who was it written to? First, the author. Who wrote this letter? The Apostle Peter, inspired by the Spirit. Let's think about that. What comes to your mind when you think of Peter? Peter, the Apostle Peter, one of the twelve disciples. As many of you know, Pastor Troy is preaching through John and is about to finish in our morning services. And last week, in the passage that Pastor Troy preached on, the Apostle Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane had his sword or dagger and cut off the right ear of Malchus. That's this Peter. We heard this morning that Peter was the one who denied Christ Three times. This same Peter wrote the letter that we're studying tonight as God's inspired word. But you all know that Peter's story didn't end in faithlessness. As we were reminded this morning, what defines Peter was not the rooster, but the cross. In John 21, we read that Jesus forgave Peter. He forgave him and pursued him by the sea of Tiberias. He was not only forgiven, he was also commissioned. He was sent out as an 
apostle of the risen and ascended Christ. In Acts, we read about his ministry, a ministry that wasn't perfect by any means, but it was fruitful and faithful. And after writing this letter, after writing 2 Peter, he was martyred in Rome by the Roman Empire. If you have your worship guide, I included the timeline of Peter's life on the back page, on page 8, just as a refresher, just as a reminder of who this man was. This is, this is the Peter who wrote this book. As you can see at the very bottom, Peter, after writing this second letter, is martyred in Rome. So who wrote this letter? Who wrote 2 Peter? The Apostle Peter, as he was inspired by the Spirit. So let's not forget that as we come to the, to the end of these, these closing verses. So 2 Peter wrote it, and who received it? Well, put simply, Christians, the beloved people of God. As we think about the audience, I want to point out two similarities between the Christians who first received this letter and us today. Similarities between Christians then and now. Well, Christians in the first century lived between the first and second comings of Christ. That might seem obvious, but they lived after Christ had ascended into heaven and they were waiting for Christ to come back. After 2,000 years, that's us. We are, st- we are living between the first and second comings of Christ. So, like them, we are living in the last days. And Peter mentions that in this letter. We are living in the last days, just like Christians were in the first century. That's one similarity. Another similarity is this. Because we're also living in the last days, because we're also waiting for Christ to return, it's also true that false teachers haven't gone away. Like first century Christians, we too, in the 21st century, are plagued and perplexed by false teaching. Self-professing Christians in our culture, in the wider churches, want us to affirm heresies about all sorts of things. Heresies about sexuality. Heresies about race. Heresies about many things. So like first century Christians, we too need to hear this call to hold fast, stand firm, know what's true, and believe it. So the point is this. Second Peter was written for Christians like us. It really was. This letter is for us to hear. It's what God's people in the first century needed to hear, and it's what we study tonight because it's what we need to hear too. So what do we need to hear? I'll give a brief summary of where we've been in Second Peter. We need to be reminded, first and foremost, of the gospel. You may remember how Peter summed it up in chapter 1. Here's how Peter summed up the gospel, the good news. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Peter begins his letter with a reminder of the gospel. And that's how he puts it. This is the good news. This is what God has done in Christ for us. 
In light of the gospel, we need to hear not only the gospel, but the call of the gospel. As Peter words it, for this reason, because the gospel is true, for this reason, make every effort. Supplement your faith, Peter says, with virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love. Peter goes on to say, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. Jesus Christ calls us to follow him with our all. Like Christians, we also need to hear that God's word is, well, it's God's word. It really is. Peter writes, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. We also need to hear what's true of false teachers. Chapter 2 is a graphic description and denunciation. I think that's a word. Denunciation? Yes. He denounces the heretics. And it's a graphic chapter. It really is. Peter's point, rest assured, false teachers will be condemned. They will be damned. And yes, God's people will be rescued. And that brings us to chapter 3. God's people in the first century and now in the 21st century need to hear that Christ is coming back, just like he promised. That the Lord is patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That we wait for a new heavens, a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. So that's a quick summary, but what a letter. What a letter. Months ago, I picked this letter thinking, I'm not very familiar with this letter. And it's been so good to study it. My hope and prayer is that if you have been here for any of the sermons, any of the previous sermons, that you in some way, shape, or form, as Peter says, have grown, have grown in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now with all that said, we come to the last couple verses. Here are his last words. His parting thoughts, his final exhortations. Specifically, there are four commands and a final doxology. Four commands and a final doxology. So think of it as Peter giving us, at the very end, a five-point sermon. The first command is this. Be diligent. Be diligent. Listen again to verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Why should we be diligent? Since you are waiting for these. Since you are waiting for these. In other words, since you are waiting for new heavens and a new earth. That's what Peter just spoke about the previous verse. Since you are waiting for these, be diligent. We spoke about this last time, and maybe before, before that as well. But notice once again, as you look at verse 14, notice the inseparable link between ethics and eschatology. Ethics, how we live, and eschatology, what we believe about the last things. Peter tells us about the future so that it impacts our lives today, tonight. 
this week. For Peter, the goal is not speculation, but application. And the application is this. Be diligent. Be diligent. As you think about diligence, I think about our Lancaster County context. You all know that we live in a diligent culture. Generally speaking, Lancaster County is a diligent culture or subculture. We are a people who pride ourselves in working hard, in saving money, in doing it ourselves. The do-it-yourself marketing campaign does well here. We are a diligent people, generally speaking. So what kind of diligence does Peter have in mind? What does he have in mind? Be diligent to be found by him. To be found. This is judicial language. To be found is the language of a court. We haven't gotten to this place in the Gospel of John. I think it might be coming up this coming Sunday. But Pilate will use this same word, to be found, translated to be found, three times as he's speaking with Jesus. Pilate says of Jesus, I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. Three times, the same word. So you see that judicial courtroom context? So here's the question for us. Here's the question, the all-important question. How will God find you? How will God find us? Peter is looking ahead to the future, and he knows that each one of us will one day stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Each one of us. We will one day give an account for every word, every thought, every action, every desire, every habit, all of our works. We, that will be us, each one of us, believers and unbelievers. And the question is not, how do I compare to others? Or was I more kind to so-and-so? The question is not, what do I think of myself? The question is this, how will God find us? How will he find you? Peter makes this point clear. He says, be diligent to be found by him. Be diligent to be found. He doesn't just stop there. Be diligent to be found by your neighbor, by you, by the culture. No, be diligent to be found by him. So let me ask you again, how will he find you? How will God find you? That's what Peter is thinking about. Will he find us specifically without spot or blemish? Will he find us at peace, reconciled with God through Christ? Now, at this point, we can clarify and be clear that our works can never get us into heaven. Our works aren't the condition for our welcome into heaven. No, we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That is true. Our works can't get us into heaven. But Peter is this, uh, Peter's point is this, that at the final judgment, even though we're not saved by our works, we will still give an account of them. 
We will give an account of our works. All of them. Each one of us, believer and unbeliever. That's the point Peter is trying to get across. Be diligent to be found by him. It's not just Peter. Paul says elsewhere, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due for what he has done. So how will he find us? Peter, he's finishing this letter. He's about to be martyred by the Roman Empire and he's writing to God's church saying, how will he find you? How will he find you? Will he find you worrying about your life? Will he find you excusing unrighteous anger? Will he find you dishonoring governing authorities? Will he find you embittered toward a brother or sister in Christ? Will he find you disrespecting a spouse or child or anyone? Will he find you indifferent to the orphan and widow? Will he find you as someone who is quick to speak and slow to listen? Will he find you flirting with sexual sin? We could go on and on, but you see my point. How will God find us? How will he find us? So if there is ever a clear clarion call to obedience, then this is it. This is it right here. Let the word of God rouse your heart wherever it's sluggish, wherever it's indifferent to God's call to holiness. Let the word of God rouse and stir up your heart. Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Or maybe we could think in terms of the sermon this morning. Yes, we are defined by the triumph of Christ, not by our sin. And Peter's point is that that is not an excuse to sin. We are defined by Christ, not our sin, but far be it from us to think that that's an excuse to, to sin. No, all the more may we run from sin and put it to death and make war against it. May we be defined more and more and more by Christ. That's Peter's point here. So that's Peter's first command. <clears throat> be diligent. His second command is this. Count. Now he's obviously not talking about addition or subtraction. Let me read again verses 15 to 16. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul's Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. Peter says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. He's returning to something he had talked about in previous verses. Why has Christ not returned yet? Why has he why is he still tarrying? Why has he not yet come back? Well, it's not because he's procrastinating. It's because he's patient. This is a point that Peter made earlier. Verse 9 of this same chapter. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is a call to evangelism. 
Until Christ returns, each day, each new day is a day of the Lord being patient. It's potentially a day of salvation for the unbeliever, for the lost. Today is a day. Tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, and so on. All of these days, until Christ comes back, all of these days are days for unbelievers to repent of their sin and to put their faith in Christ. This is a call to evangelism. A call for us to share the gospel with the people in our lives who don't know Christ before it's too late. The window is still open for now. And while it's open, that means the Lord is patient and wants people to be saved. It's a call to evangelism. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. So it's that, the call to evangelism. It's also a call, though, for self-professing Christians. It's a call for the church, for self-professing Christians to hear. It's a call for us to make sure of our salvation. Or as Peter says earlier in the letter, make your calling and election sure. In other words, he doesn't want us to doubt our salvation. No, he he wants us to be assured of our salvation as we back up more and more our walk with our talk. As we show that we are Christians by following Jesus wholeheartedly in all of our lives. So it's a call for self-professing Christians. Count this day as a day of the Lord's patience. Count it as salvation. So that's his second point. And you'll notice that he doesn't jump right to the next command. He has much more to say before he gets to verse 17. And he brings in Paul in his letters. Why does he do that at this point? Why does Peter go on a, an inspired rabbit trail, so to speak, and bring up Paul in his letters? Why does he do that? Peter's doing something that we all do at times. We probably do it more than we realize. But he's, what's he doing? He's appealing to someone else to confirm what he's been saying. So it's as though Peter is saying, Hey, Christians, for the record, I'm not the only one who's saying these things. Don't forget Paul. Remember the letters he wrote to you. He wrote letters to you. Paul wrote letters to you. Don't forget about those. He and I are on the same team. We're on the same page. And you also need to know that that page that we're on is a different page than what the false teachers are on. We're together against them. It could have been that the false teachers in these churches were appealing to Paul. It could have been that they were appealing to Paul, saying maybe things like, let's sin so that grace may abound. Let's sin because we're under grace, we're not under law. After all, Paul says... It could have been that the false teachers were appealing to Paul. Peter knows that. And so he brings in Paul and says, no, 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 we're on the same team. We really are. Now he says, as he talks about Paul's letters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. Okay. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. The point is not that Paul is unclear or obscure. That's not the point. The point is that it can be easy to misinterpret or 
distort or twist what Paul writes. Think about our own day, the 21st century. Have you ever heard someone appeal to Paul to defend or justify something that was completely wrong? You step back and think, how did they get that? What do you mean? Are you actually reading it? Yeah. To, to this day, this is what happens. The ignorant and the unstable twist the truth. They twist Paul's writings to their own destruction. It's a big deal. To their own destruction. Paul's teaching is not to be toyed with. His letters are unlike anything that you and I will ever write. They are so different than our Christmas cards that we'll send out in a few weeks. They really are. Did you notice Peter's offhand comment at the end of verse 16? It's like he just throws this in for fun. As they do the other scriptures. In the New Testament, whenever it says scriptures, it's always referring to the Old Testament. As you read the New Testament, whenever whenever Paul or others refer to the scriptures, they're referring back to the Old Testament. So Peter's claiming something here in this offhand, hey, by the way, sort of way. He's claiming that Paul's letters have a status equal to the Old Testament. Paul's letters are nothing less than the inspired, inerrant, authoritative scripture. So Peter is aware of his context. He knows that it's likely that the false teachers are appealing to Paul and he's saying, look, we're on the same team. They are distorting the truth to their own destruction. And Paul's writings, that's scripture. Peter goes on in verse 17. There's quite a contrast here as he starts. He says, You therefore, you therefore, you're not the ones distorting the truth. You're not the false teachers that I'm referring to. No, you therefore, beloved, you are the beloved people of God. And he writes, You therefore, beloved, beloved, knowing this beforehand, Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. So if you're keeping track, the first command is be diligent, and then count, and then take care. I don't know about you, but I often say take care. As I'm saying goodbye to someone in person or on the phone, I often say, take care. I probably say it a lot. I'm not sure how often I do, but it's, I often say it, take care. And it's a well-meaning, simple, kind-hearted, parting expression. Hey, take care. Sometimes we might say, break a leg, but we really don't mean it. That's just a different way of saying, hey, I care about you, but I want you to laugh as we're parting. Break a leg. We really want people to take care. I say that, we say that often in a casual way, but there's nothing casual about what Peter is saying here. His take care is not this casual, hey, take care. He says, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. So do you feel the weightiness or the, the seriousness or the significance of this? Take care that you are not carried away. 
again, remember, he's writing, as far as we know, his last letter. He's about to be martyred. And he's saying, these are the things you need to know, Christians. And he says, take care. Take care. Now, have you ever heard someone say, the best defense is a good offense? Have you ever heard someone say that? Yeah, the best defense is a good offense. Well, in some ways, the same is true in the Christian life. Think about it. Our best defense, our best defense against the flesh, against sin, against false teaching, against apostasy, is an offense, a good offense. In other words, our best offense is growing, growing. Verse 18, Peter says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Be diligent, count, take care, and grow. Grow. I want us to think about this, especially the growing in grace part. I'm not sure about you, but that can sound abstract. What does it mean to grow in grace? And as you think about it, you might wonder, well, I thought, I thought God's favor toward me was steady, unchanging. How can I grow in grace? Can it wane and wax? Can it ebb and flow? I thought God smiles on me all the time because of Christ. How can I grow in grace? So here's what I... What I thought of as I studied this, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So think back to this past week. There were some absolutely gorgeous fall days. Gorgeous. Mid-60s, still, or just a slight breeze. The fall colors are amazing. Some beautiful days in a row. You have one day and you can't think it you, you think it couldn't get better, and then there, there's there's another one and another one. I'm not sure how many days there were, but it was beautiful. It was a beautiful week. And that was true, regardless of what you were doing or where you were. It was these we had several beautiful days all in a row. You could have been inside oblivious, but it was true. But maybe you went for a walk at some point or paused to just soak it in. Wow. This is so gorgeous. This is amazing. Using your five senses, you really saw. You saw the shades of red and orange and yellow. You paused and really heard the crunch of the leaves as you walked down the sidewalk. Or you really tasted and smelled that, that pumpkin spice latte or whatever. Maybe you're onto the Christmas drinks. But you really smelled it. You really tasted it. Or, that last sense, you, you felt. You felt the warm sunshine. You were aware of it, and you enjoyed it. So, all that to say, you grew in your enjoyment and delight in, in, in God's creation that was there. It was beautiful, it was there. You could have been inside all day. It was true, but you grew in your enjoyment of it. Well, now think of your Christian life. Think of your Christian life. God's favor 
His grace toward you in Christ is like that gorgeous fall day. God's favor shines on you. You might be indoors or busy or oblivious, but the day is still beautiful. In the same way, God's favor is on you as a Christian. You might be oblivious or forgetful or whatever, but his favor is on you. Smiling like the warm sunshine on a fall day. And what does our Father invite us to do? He invites us to delight ourselves in Jesus. To lean in and to enjoy our Savior. He invites us to be satisfied. In in a spiritual sense, to really see and hear and feel and taste and smell the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. We know Christ. To know Him is eternal life and we get to know Him more. I think that's what Peter is getting at here. Grow in the grace and knowledge of your Savior, Jesus Christ. This last command, all of them, but I think of how this last command is no chore. It's no chore for us as Christians. This fourth and final command to grow is what God created and redeemed us to do. Grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Is it any wonder that Peter ends with the doxology? Is it any wonder that he ends with the doxology? He has given us four commands. Some of them are, well, all of them are serious and weighty in a sense. He says, be diligent and count and take care and grow. And as we step back and think about these commands, I think about how, for some of us, these commands can feel deflating. We look at ourselves... We see our failures, our weaknesses, our sins. We're reminded of the rooster crowing, so to speak. We're reminded of our sin. We see our failures. For others of us, we look at ourselves and see potential and successes and victories. Whoever you may be, however you might respond to commands in Scripture, and these commands specifically, whoever you might be, whatever your tendency, Peter's goal is not for us to leave looking at ourselves. The point of this final doxology is to lift our gaze away from ourselves, to lift our gaze to the one to whom all glory is due. Not us, not you, not me. When all is said and done, we proclaim, as Peter ends, to him, to him, To Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Amen. Amen.